and welcome to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Belecki, talk to writers about writing. Very often those writers are suggested to me by writers who have been on the show. The writer on the show this episode is Mike Correo. He's the author of two novels, Man O' oh Man and Gut Text, one book of poetry, two novels, two plays, Smut Maker and Androna Medusa, and two chapbooks, Avian Funeral March and Spelunker. Along with earning multiple Best of the Net nominations, Mike's work has been featured in publications such as 3AM, Collagist, Always Crashing, and the Portland Review. His work often explores the haptic, architectural, and organismal qualities of the text object. He lives in Minneapolis. Before we get on with the show proper, I feel like I should let you know that if you want to support the show, you can do so in two ways, with a one-time donation at paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe, or a recurring donation that comes with goodies depending on your donation level at patreon.com slash noisemaker joe now without further ado here's my conversation with mike so how does one get from man oh man to smut maker um i do not know it was very unplanned i um i think it's i get bored very easily and so i like i kind of liked that French form or kind of like romanticized French form in Man O' Man where it's just like two people talking about different like philosophers and writers and all of that and then I kind of in like college all professors kept telling me that I was good at dialogue so I was like oh I'll just only do dialogue if that's the thing I'm good at mm. and then I kind of started playing around more because that you might imagine got very boring after writing a whole yeah. book that was just dialogue. Um, and so I just started kind of playing with form and I found inside the castle and I liked their idea of like text as object and like page as surface and started playing around with that with like gut text and um, a piece I did after that called Rituals Performing the Absence of Ganymede that's coming out next year and it just kind of descended into whatever chaos from there. But uh, Smut Maker is a lot of uh, John Treffrey did most of the design for that. Okay. I had kind of sent him this raw manuscript that was really inspired by Antwerp by Bolaño. I don't know if you're familiar with it. But I haven't read that, but I've read Bolaño. Yeah, there's um, it's it's such a like tangential inspiration, but it's um, he had done this uh, kind of format on a couple of the pages that would be like a quotation and then an ellipses and then the next quotation he would just kind of chain those together Mm. um and i really liked the idea of doing a whole book of that and so i did um and then john was like hey uh can i like play around with this a bit more and i think mike klein and him were talking during that inside the castle reading in kansas a while back and mike klein was like oh it should be in color and i was like yeah i'm i'm not gonna say no to that (laughs) and um it was it was a really good sign because uh, when John started the formatting, he asked me if the sentences need to be in order or not, and I was like, "That's an incredible question to be asked about your book as the formatting starts." And of course, I said, "No, they don't." And he kind of made those incredible spreads. So much of me wants to get published by him just to really understand what it's like to be published by him. Cause... It's it's great. It's um, I I think that um. He said that me and um, Grant with Parapadit had uh, the most tedious books that he's worked on, mm-hmm. I think, um, <laughs> because I, I really just gave him raw text and he was like, can I play with this? And I was like, yeah, go wild. Um, but it's it's really fun because you're not you're kind of like a step back um, and then you'll start getting these like screenshots or at least I just kept getting screenshots that just got me super excited because I would be like, oh, that's what you did to that page. But he's also super receptive. Like we we like talked through kind of like page dimensions and how we wanted each act to be displayed and kind of like what the inspirations were. And so he gives you like as much say as he can. And then he's like, OK, I have my list of criteria. And then he just kind of runs off with it. That's so cool. But, yeah. In the past um, months, I've been listening to old Harlan Ellison interviews, and he screams about editors, especially with writing TV. How yeah. They're like, what if this character was a woman? He's like, if I wanted that character to be a woman, I would have written a woman. <laughs> yeah. And like the editor-writer relationship is so on its head over there. Yeah. And I, I feel like I'm so ambivalent about editors because on one hand, I'm like, I, I made the book a certain way and that's how I want it. But also editors like John or Andrew from 1111 are super cool because I like editors who are like, I see what you want to do and I see what you're trying to do. Let's take it like a step further or like this could be 
more intense or chaotic. Like they kind of just present that avenue to make it a more potent version of what you gave them. Yeah. Which kind of Which seems is, like that's what editors are supposed to do. Yeah, it's what they're supposed to do, but then you get some kind of like large financial apparatus backing it that has like high stakes. Editors suck when the stakes are high. Editors are great when there's no stakes. I think that's kind of the takeaway. Because mm. John's not like, John and Andrew aren't like, oh, like if we make this edit, I might lose us $10,000 or some mm. amount of money. They're not like trying to get that kind of broad appeal that television editors want well and that's what makes them so successful i mean as yeah. far as indie publishers go these days they're yeah. kind of the ones to go to it seems in my experience but that could just be the writing that i'm paying attention to yeah that's um i was thinking about the app the other day too because i feel like every book i've ordered in the last like six months has been like a small press book so my my judgment's clouded mm-hmm. but i'm like oh of course i want to read like the new uh like apocalypse party book or the new um like dostoevsky wannabe book um i'm not really like paying attention to like whatever penguin is putting out and stuff which maybe a lot more well not maybe but a lot more people are but it's kind of interesting how it it feels kind of like music where you're like i know i like the stuff this label puts out so i'll pay attention to it mm-hmm. yeah absolutely I wonder if there are people who like watch Penguin. That would be, I imagine that's exhausting because they probably have like an absurd output being as big as they are. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, okay, there's 30 books I need to buy this month from Penguin that are new releases. I had a writing professor in college who talked about how he would read like the New York Times book reviews, but like there's no way I can read all those books. No, that just seems exhausting. I've gotten so picky. Like, I'm like, I will only read something if I think I'll like it, which it seems obvious, but I feel like, because I also do a lot of book reviews, and it's like, I'm not going to ask for a copy of something that I, I don't think I'm going to love, because then what's the point to be like, well, this isn't for me. Like, that's not an interesting review, yeah, and not like a fun experience as a reader. And so I've just been so like selective about what I've been reading. Sure. Let's talk about your book reviews because we talked about that in DMs briefly or you brought it up and mm-hmm. um, the idea of like talking about other people's works. And I've seen people talking about that on Twitter recently, sort of bemoaning the lack of good book reviews or book reviews even at all. So what's that process like for you? Um, it's I, I'll like after I kind of get a hold of the book, I'll just kind of read through it and take usually for like a hundred to like 250 page book i end up with like 10 pages of notes as i'm reading Mm. just like pulling quotes and observations and then i try to make it like um less of like a like how good the book is like i don't care about like quality as much as i'm interested in like kind of what kind of experience i had reading and what kind of like i don't i don't want to be so far as to say like theoretical book what kind of like ideas came out of it as i was reading kind of like what came as a result of an encounter with a book. Um, I saw that I had like a piece come out the other day on the Action Books blog, and I really liked um, Johannes Gorenson called it a topographical reading, which I think is really interesting. Like it's more an encounter with the surface rather than being like, well, this one's a three out of five for me, because like that doesn't really mean anything. I'd rather understand like what kind of experience someone had with the book rather than being like, here's what I liked. I'd rather hear them be like, this made me think of this. Or like, um, for example, what like Monster, the Olivia Cronk book that I reviewed on the Action Books blog being like, uh, the Ekphrasis I thought did something interesting or being like these images started this bomb. I said this really interrogative like quality to it, like having this kind of understanding of the text rather than just being like, that was cool. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that certainly helps you interrogate your own writing better, too, I think. Yeah, there was, um, I don't remember who it was from, but there was a tweet that I saw when I was, like, first starting to do reviews a year or two ago that was, like, if you don't consider reviews part of your own body of work, then they're not good reviews. Mm. And I kind of really took that to heart that, like, you shouldn't just do it as this, like, throwaway networking tactic or, like, way to get more of your work published, but as, like, a really kind of helpful way to engage with other texts and ideas and see kind of what you can extract for them for your own work. Cause I feel like um, doing reviews has been so useful for kind of 
learning what I'm interested in, what ideas that I'm like drawn towards and that I want to explore in my own work. Um, it, it reminds me of like, who is it? I know there's like uh, how Blanchot would infect his own, like the few novels that he did with like the theory that he was writing out or how the psychoanalyst like Julia Kristeva would do detective novels using the psychoanalytic terms that she was trying to like map out in her theory texts. Like, I like the idea of that nonfiction and fiction kind of, like, playing with each other and working off each other in your own body of work. Yeah. Which I know you have the uh, the body noir. Yeah. I think I thought, which it seems like a, and let me know if I'm wrong, but it's like a tender body horror or, like, an intimate body horror. Yeah, it's, it's the horror of the body itself. So, yeah, it's like, um, you know, rather than, like, a parasite coming into you your body is the parasite itself yeah which is great i remember that series of tweets that you had where it's like body noir is whatever and body noir is this yeah and even i think that um a lot of people like the romantic idea of being like inspired by another author like another text but i think it's a lot more interesting to like latch on to all these kind of like microscopic sources like i thought that was really cool or all like get inspiration from like some random youtube video that i'm listening to as i work or mm-hmm. just like grabbing all these kind of minute sources and pulling them in yeah which i think might be a lot of the cost to my the chaos of my work is having maybe like hundreds of different inspirations that i've forgotten most of but i remember reading those tweets and then for like the next week i was like how can i make like intimate body horror stuff yeah and thinking about it <laughs> I like to to go back with that idea and then think about the things that I've read before that are body or body noir like like binary star by Sarah Gerard like I would yeah call like that. the the retroactive labeling yeah, yeah. Um, I like that I was really into like the sub sub genre music categorization do you know everynoise.com? yeah 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 so i would just like go through and there's a scan button on that website and it plays like 15 seconds of a song that they've categorized as a thing and there's words i've never heard of and it goes you know throughout the world and everything and it'll be like lo-fi folk punk or some like six word genre title yeah yeah. (laughs) that was fun i used to i think i found out about that in i think it was in like high school or maybe like early college when i found that i think i spent like just a week going through it and like looking at all the different things i could find that i was like i have no idea what or japanese that was my favorite i think i ran into or i was like how is this like how is japanese a large enough genre on its own to yeah. like deem a label and then i started listening to it and i was like oh that's actually really interesting <laughs> um one of the things that i noticed is how much output you have uh you have quite a few books out you have four novels out two chat books more novels forthcoming lots of short stuff published poetry nonfiction. um like how much do you write it varies a lot like um i feel like i'm always working on something it feels very like I get too anxious if I'm not like in the middle of a project, even if that's just like a very short, like four line poem or like a whole book. Like I, there always has to be something pending, but it's like, I'm trying to think of how much I've made since I started or since like quarantine started as like an example. I think I've done, I've written like five short stories in one book project. That's about 140 pages. And I mean, 140 pages is probably only like 10,000 words because of the design of the book. But I think it's just um, some kind of inspiration hits, some kind of image sticks out to me, either when I'm like watching something or reading something or playing something. And it kind of just like lingers there. And then I start kind of writing out notes on it. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to say how quick or how much I... I feel like I don't work that much because I'll like not work for a day and I'll be like, oh, I'm I'm like barely a writer. <laughs> like I, I haven't done anything today. <laughs> and, then, and then like a month later, I'll be like, well, the book is done. And so it's it's such a kind of like manic, like work and non-work kind of flux that it's hard to keep track of. <laughs> mm. Well, that's an interesting thing with, with the uh, 
like word count to page count sort of thing. I always get really self-conscious about that. Yeah, I do too. Cause I'm, I had, um, I think man, oh man is by word count, the longest book I've published, but the shortest by page count. Mm. And, and it's like, I think it's like 34,000 words. And then gut text, which is like 60 pages longer is only 10,000 words. Mm. Like it's, it's felt so weird that I'm like, is it's the right page count, but is it like, does it count as a book if it's only 10,000 words? And yeah, it like feels like I have to hit a certain number. Yeah. I remember when I was writing my like first novel in this incarnation of me being a writer and I just mm-hmm. like looked up, Oh, how, how long are novels? And some <laughs> website was like, commercial novels are 80,000 to a hundred thousand words long. And I was like, all right, we're going to hit 80. Yeah. <laughs> And I did, and, you know, like, a lot of my stuff is really kind of dense anyway, where Mm -hmm. it's, like, page-long paragraphs and stuff like that, where Mm -hmm. it's a lot more words per page than a lot of the people I read. And I don't know, like, I, it's, like, can I even really call it a novel if it's less than 50,000 words? Like, I start feeling weird about it, and yeah, it's such a weird distinction. Yeah, I remember I... I did the same thing, but I kept looking it up and seeing how like short I could get the minimum novel word count to be. Mm. And I think I found one that was like 40 and I was like, okay, 40 sounds good. And then man, oh man was like 35 and I was like, that's pretty much 40. Like I kept <laughs> trying to compromise it because <laughs> I was like, it has to be a real novel, whatever that dumb term means. Um, and then after man, oh man, I was, I started reading all these weird things like M Kitchell's work. And mm. um, I think I, went back to like i'm like looking i have my bookcase to my side here so i'm like scanning to see if i can remember uh viki now's sheet machine too these books where i was like oh word count doesn't matter i was like i just need to make it like page count long enough <laughs> yeah and so then stuff like gut text started happening where i had all these kind of formal oddities and i was like well 150 is book length so that's fine yeah there you go <laughs> i had to read it on my phone because Mm. uh your scheduling was kind of last minute and the book is supposed to get here tomorrow like oh that doesn't help me so i read it on my phone and i don't know if that changes the experience i mean having pages that are black with white text Mm -hmm. you know in a book is so much more satisfying because you get to see all the the printer marks yeah that like ink act or excess yeah uh, what program do you use to write? Um, for a long time, I just used Word. Mm-hmm. Um, and then recently, because I started doing some design work, I've been using InDesign. Okay. But um, I think I only used InDesign for the most recent project. And so, like, everything that's come out so far has been through Word, except for Smutmaker, because I think John primarily uses InDesign. But sure. all of that has just been me jury-rigging Word to do something resembling what I wanted to. Okay. Do you have the margins set up like in the book uh, format that you envision or is it just like- Yeah, I always write in, it's the first thing I figure out is page dimensions. And um, my partner always makes fun of me because I'll tell her about a project I'm working on and I'm like, okay, it's six by nine. And she's like, but what's it about? And I'm like, I always start with the page dimensions to be like, let me contextualize it for you. You need to know how big it is when you hold it. (laughs) okay see i was as i was reading gut text i was wondering if that was the case because some of the pages just kind of look like they had to have been made with that in mind so yeah it's it's always like the first thing that comes to mind is i'm like i need to know how big it will be when i hold it because that'll determine like how i want a design to look like if i have a big page like a six by nine book then a design can be more intricate. But if I have like a small, say like three by seven book, then I want it to be kind of like a more minimalist image. Mm. And so it just like, it it kind of informs how I put the book together. Cause I tend to, I like each page to be, I don't like one page bleeding into the next per se. Like I don't like the idea of like starting a paragraph on page one and ending on page two. Mm. Like I like the idea of each page being its own kind of singular unit. And so gut text was made kind of with the idea that each page had exactly the info I wanted to be on that page. Yeah. Um, 
which is I think why in like NN um, you'll see that like excuse me um, in NN there's the like they'll only take up like half or three fourths of a page because um, I wanted each kind of bracket of information to be together mm -hmm. and I didn't want anything from the next to be there um, and that's happened a lot more recently now that I've kind of honed in on this more design oriented style so yeah. like with um the project i have coming out in january rituals performing the absence of ganymede i i rewrote that whole thing and relayed out that whole thing after i got in design just to be like okay i like the idea that i can before i put the book out because InDesign displays your pages as spreads and so you yeah. see like left and right next to each other and so it was really nice to be like okay this is the spread that they'll see when they read the book physically Versus word, you kind of have to guess and rig it to like, kind of look like it'll be, and even then you'll end up with the the gutter margins will be on the outside, and you'll have this kind of like, faux understanding of how it'll look to the reader. Yeah, that's good. I have the Adobe Suite. I might have to start doing that. I remember uh, someone could probably go back and listen to earlier episodes of this podcast where I sort of flippantly say, "Oh, maybe someday I'll write a book in InDesign because." <laughs> just like thinking about like house of leaves because i had probably just read that like right around the time of starting this podcast and really st starting to understand how uh how books can actually be yeah like that book that, is such a jumping off point i feel yeah it's kind of funny because i feel like a lot of experimental writers kind of like kind of scoff at that book they're like oh house of leaves it's, but it's such a good kind of introduction to these Mm -hmm. more design-oriented projects. I think I read that in, like, freshman year of college, and I was like, oh, this is great. And it kind of got me, I was like, what other books are like this? Like, it's such a good kind of way to get people interested in kind of the potential of what books can be. Yeah. But, but writing a book in InDesign is weird. It feels like you're not really writing to mm -hmm. a certain extent. It feels like you're more just, like, putting something together. Like, it feels like you're designing the book rather than writing it, yeah. even though you're, like, putting new text into the page. Well, I think it's interesting to think about writing a book from the perspective of design. I have a bunch of sticky notes underneath where you can see me. And I think on one of them, <laughs> it says something like, what if I took the design principles and wrote a book with those in mind? So repetition, yeah. symmetry, balance, all that yeah. stuff. Because I took a, a document design class in college. So we were like using InDesign to make brochures and posters and things like that. And we even laid out an ebook because we, we just took like stuff from the Creative Commons or um, public domain and laid mm -hmm. out our own book and put it on Lulu. And like that idea of specifically picking your font and picking yeah. the size and stuff. But like, what if you go crazy? and you know end up with something yeah. like gut text or smut maker yeah it's i think i really like the idea of it because it's like making a book that has to be a book it feels much more intentional um like uh something like uh i'm trying to think of a good like something like blanchot or like cervantes or like a victorian novel can all like exists as an ebook or anywhere and you're like I, I get generally the same experience um there might be like less of that romanticized like holding the book to experience it but like you don't truly need it to be a book in your hands but i like the idea of kind of making something that it feels like if you don't have the physical object something's missing like it it's something that you can just have in your home like it's I, I hate the term like sculpture object because it feels so like art pretentious, mm. but this thing that like feels like it was built more than just kind of like printed out. Yeah. Well, I'm um, right there with you. And I, I think when I was talking to uh, Logan Barry, who runs uh, Runaways Lab uh, in Chicago, which is this really cool theater company, I, I use the term spatial reading or uh, environmental reading. Like I like the idea of navigating a text and kind of moving through it rather than just like looking at the page and scanning the words. Mm. Do you think your background in film has informed how you write books? A little bit. I think more than anything, it's kind of given me, um, I take a lot of inspiration from visuals rather than from um, things that I read. And I think that's a lot to do with film. Mm. Um, I'll kind of 
like watch videos or movies or uh, play a game and I will take inspiration from that rather than kind of looking back through whatever writers I'm really drawn towards. Um, when I worked uh, on film stuff, I mainly worked in kind of like a, a writing and directorial role. I don't have much of like a mechanical background, um, but I think it, it gave me a really kind of, it places emphasis on like the image rather than the narrative. Cause a lot of the films I worked on were like 30 seconds long or two minutes long. They were all these very kind of condensed short form pieces that were really abstract. Mm. Okay. My background in film is tangential. I have a broadcasting degree, mm. but a lot of people, the way that Grand Valley State University works is their broadcasting classes, at least when I went there, they've since merged broadcasting and journalism degrees together into one thing, which I, th mm -hmm. I think has sort of neutered the entire technical aspect of it and is more just actually journalism, but here's how to run a camera because you'll have to yeah. if you want to be a journalist. Yeah. But there was a class... Um, the PBS affiliate in Grand Rapids is run out of one of the buildings for GVSU. So one of their classes uh, was in that studio run by the director who directed yeah. like a third of the shows. So it was essentially the training course to be an intern. Um, <laughs> and for whatever reason, a lot of film people have ended up working for that station as well. Um, so the stuff that they, when they let the inmates run the asylum, the stuff that yeah. we make is, is very much more film oriented yeah. than just like put somebody on one half of the screen. And so the image can be up there and the lower third doesn't cut their face off and, yeah. and whatnot. That's uh, where I went. I went to university of Minnesota and I got a, it's studies in cinema and media culture is the name of the film degree. Mm. And a lot of people go into it being like, okay, I'm going to be a filmmaker, but it's like 90% theory. Um, and they're like, oh, well, I guess you might want to know how to run a camera too. We'll mm. throw in like a couple practice courses. And so uh, you usually you go in thinking like, oh, I'm going to make a bunch of short films. And you're like, well, now I really understand Leotard. And I've read a little Deleuze and like <laughs> you just have a bunch of these obscure uh, like theoretical terms in your head. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. I would have liked that better. I, I think that I wanted more like media theory mm -hmm. because in my mind, you could make broadcasting like a two year trade course. You don't need to go to a four year mm -hmm. university. It takes you six months to get used to running a in-studio camera. And a lot of them are, at least a lot of the TV stations in town here in Grand Rapids have mechanical cameras anyway. So you're not even running a camera. You're just, you know, moving a joystick around. So like, I want to know why we do news the way we do news and not just yeah. like, hey, okay, so this is what we do. This is how you run a, a Chiron machine. Not like, why do we design things the way we design? Yeah. And it's, I was, uh, I had a friend who was in the program too, who was complaining that there weren't enough practice courses. And I was like, I love it. Like, I love just, I think I like, the only practice course I actually took was like screenwriting because I didn't want to take any. Mm -hmm. I was like, I just want to engage with all of like the kind of theoretical texts. And so um, there were these really great courses on like oppositional cinema that deals with like alienating the viewer and um, creating these like really jarring viewing experiences like the surrealist did. and. Um, a lot of like the post sixties Godard films, um, and like others on like paranoia and like, uh, seventies American cinema. And, uh, I took one on like even television. And I think I did my capstone on like scarcity mechanics and, uh, certain video games. And mm -hmm. so I tried to like, I kind of contorted it into this almost like cultural theory degree, um, like focused on media rather while everybody else was like, okay, I'm going to take as many practice courses as they'll let me. Yeah. I mean, so much of that stuff you learn on the fly. I, I kept mm -hmm. in the first couple years of post-college working at various TV and radio stations, I kept saying, okay, what are the, ter what's the terminology I need to know? Like when, mm -hmm. you, when you say a trombone, what do you mean by trombone? Uh, <laughs> because like none of that was covered in, in school. Yeah. And it's funny because a lot of the, there's also, I can't remember the name of it, but in Minneapolis, there's like an independent film school. Um, 
and it's like one to two year programs and people come out of there with way better understanding of like how to be a filmmaker or how to kind of deal with the mechanical aspects of filmmaking than these people at like in the media studies degree who have like four year degrees and took all of these courses and they're like, what's a gaffer? And you're like, yeah. what do you mean? What's a gaffer? <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Uh, so I also recently read Spelunker and, uh, do you play Dwarf Fortress at all? A little bit. I do. Okay. <laughs> because there's a little bit of like Dwarf Fortress and Caves of Quud in there. <laughs> yeah, because before it started getting occult and and crazy, I was like, I wonder if I make my Dwarf Fortress base with these dimensions, what will happen? <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that kind of like ASCII graphic style as an aesthetic like that and like low poly kind of ps1 style graphics are always this really like alluring set of like images to me they have this kind of like a cult and a noble side like it's it's rudimentary in this really like uncanny way that you're you're thinking about like what's behind the surface of those really rudimentary images and things like dwarf fortress like obviously ask you to think of those ascii graphics as something way more complex i remember there's this funny anecdote that one of the developers was talking about where they kept getting complaints that like everybody in Dwarf Fortress was saying there's all these dead cats in their bar and they're like, why are there, we have to figure out why these dead cats are in our bar. And it was because of some absurd thing like the cat, there was a mechanic they added where alcohol could drink out of or drip out of people's cups and get on the floor. And each uh, creature's feet had like an absorption rate. And so these cats were getting alcohol absorbed into their feet and like dying from, uh, like alcohol poisoning and so the way that all of these mechanics add up to just these absurd outcomes is really interesting to me um i know that the developers talk about like uh emergent narratives where like the player is creating their own story and i think i've taken a lot of that into my own work because i like the idea of kind of the the video gamey text where you feel like you're more active um in your role like you feel like you get a say in how the book comes out like um in a recent project i was trying to incorporate like um like dice rolls and kind of other probability things that when you come back you get to kind of like have a slightly different experience mm. um and i've started writing the second person a lot more because of that um because in a in a albeit like superficial way it feels like you're more directly engaging with the text yeah um and so the project, the Ganymede book that's coming out in January is written the second person where like you as the reader and I as the text itself. And mm -hmm. it's kind of like this back and forth between you and it as you try to kind of solve the, the issues of the body being such a fragile vessel. Yeah. That's good. I'm glad I was on the right track there. I couldn't believe when I talked 100%. to- 100%. I couldn't believe when I talked to B.R. Yeager about negative space that he'd never heard of Brigand before. Oh man! This blew my mind. Like, no, you're <laughs> writing about the town. You're, you're writing about a thing. There's two movies about. Uh, I, I love the Dwarf Fortress assessment because I well, I had sent something to um, Schism, and he was uh, Gary was like, I already am kind of booked for the next like year and a half, but I'm doing this new uh, division of the press called Neuronics which is going to be open access titles, uh, like PDF downloads. Would that interest you? And I was like, this book feels too physical. Can I make something new for you and come back in a, like a month or two? And he was like, yeah, of course. And so I made Spelunker. And he was like, this is great. And when do you want to go it up and just threw it up? But I, I, that's like a piece that I really like the idea of making something that is written to be a PDF. And so like the pages are black with white text. So it's less harsh on your eyes when it's a screen and, I made them square pages, so no matter what device you're on, like they're still you're viewing a whole page at once. Like it scales properly, um, and added a lot of kind of primarily visual elements, um, kind of trying to make it this thing that's really accessible to read on a screen, whether it's like a phone or a desktop. Mm. And then, of course, that kind of being digital also naturally felt like I should start talking about like boundary clipping and all these yeah. kind of speed running tactics <laughs> yeah it, it I, I liked the idea that you were kind of exploring a program that had been procedurally generated and then it started like doing its own thing 
be yeah. into that. I mean, so uh, much of the um, like anxiety about artificial intelligence is that, right? That it'll just be like, yeah. well, I'm a paperclip making machine, but if I kill all humans, then I'll be able <laughs> to make so many more paperclips. Yeah, and I like um, neural networks are really funny to me because you're like, you can teach a neural network to do something, but you don't know the logic of why it is correct when it answers correctly. Yeah. Like you can show it, you can be like, I want a neural network that can identify pictures of wolves. And you'll show it like a bunch of pictures and it'll say that, it'll look at a white wolf and say, that's a wolf. But then it'll see a picture of like a, a desert and be like, that's a wolf too, because it's white. Yeah. Like, um, like the logic is always so unknowable. And so I like the idea of this program that you fed all this architectural data and it's like oh i noticed all this occult numerology in the architecture that has to be part of architecture and so it starts feeding that into its uh kind of like layouts that it's making yeah um philosophy tube did a did a video on that on data collection and artificial intelligence and i think that maybe it's intentional or not but like spelunker kind of offers the same idea without um adding the fear of like yeah the government's doing this same thing right now <laughs> yeah i it's i think i i'm trying to remember if i wrote that before or after quarantine it's so hard to tell <laughs> timelines now but i feel like kind of during that period i started shifting into exploring those like digital spaces a lot more maybe because everyone's in their forced hermitage but it feels like such a like prominent part of everyday life. I think about like how much time I sit at the computer, or, like am on my phone. That it feels like weird not to have pieces that spend so much time in these like abstract like digital spaces. Yeah. Hmm. But and it feels like still like such a great unknown that it's like all the vastness of this like internet uh, environment that there's all these places that you don't know exist or that it's creating new spaces so quickly that you can't keep up Yeah, that you run into something and you just don't understand like the logic behind it or like the rules that it's operating within. Yeah. Well, that's what's so satisfying to me about works like Spelunker or Amygdalatropolis, the like forcing magic back into the internet. Mm -hmm. because it feels so consolidated it really feels like you could get everything you need from the internet off of reddit and twitter and mm -hmm. youtube like you really only need three websites but there's so much more out there and there's <laughs> you know people with crazy ideas doing things I, I posted that link to the 973 the human website a couple oh, weeks yeah. ago that is like a really strangely formatted dictionary of chaos magic and it's like what why are we creating this what why are we doing this <laughs> yeah or there's um i think it's called jody.org which is just this site that you like it's a bunch of kind of ascii type uh graphics on a web page and it's constantly shifting colors you you can click different places on each page but you don't quite know like where you should be clicking or where it'll lead to like it's just this labyrinth that you have no means of kind of mapping out properly oh dear oh yeah i'm on it right now <laughs> yep yeah and some like it'll try to download files onto your computer if you have it like allowed um and it'll have pop-ups and it's just this like frantic site that's made to just fuck with you huh um i think jake reber showed it to me because he we were talking and he named it and I was like, oh, I don't know what that is. And he's like, oh, you don't know what this is? And he sent me the link. And I was like, what am I, what am I doing? What am I, like, looking at? <laughs> but. Man. Imagine trying to map that out. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of tempted to. Um, and then releasing it without context would be great. And he's <laughs> like, okay, here's your way through the maze. And they're like, what maze? <laughs> oh, man. I want to show this to my wife. She's been working as a, a web designer for the past couple of years might give her a heart attack if you <laughs> oh my god yeah i'm gonna pull it up on her laptop and just close her laptop and next time she has to get on it just... <laughs> what is going on um oh no that tangent that's totally ruptured my brain because now i just all i want to think about is strange websites um, it's tempting and there's so many <laughs> 
are you familiar with gnome books at all they publish yeah. like the anonymous yeah, or like yeah. pseudonymized um, yeah i just actually finished um what is it geo uh, geophilosophical branding mm. by more cozy but there's a lot of really interesting stuff from them yeah i know electron frass and ods have books out through them okay that's i didn't know that what's your opinion because obviously you write under your name what's what do you think about like putting something else out without you know your name attached to it do you think that would change the way it's consumed by the reader uh to a certain i don't to a certain extent yes but i don't know if i'm kind of notable enough Mm. to (laughs) have too much like um kind of prior uh kind of framing attached to my name sure but i'm not opposed to it i've i've tried to do it a couple times in the past but then pieces ended up not getting picked up um they were all book length when i tried to do it Uh, i have a bit of like over publishing anxiety um that i'm like am i putting too many things out or like if i try to do another thing this year is that too much and so i've definitely considered doing stuff um pseudonymously but just nothing's caught yet okay gnome books is always a tempting option though yeah that kind of like esoteric uh like simplistic book cover like old i think they have like a blog spot site that they're selling out of Mm -hmm. there's kind of this like archaic interest in it i remember listening to an interview with one of the guys from the metal band full of hell and he was talking about some record label he knew out in carolina that like only puts out cassette tapes and that and that idea is so fascinating to me that like you only get this if you really want it like you you as the consumer have to work to consume this which is like the most radical thing you can do these days is force people to come to you yeah i like that kind of like inaccessibility to a certain extent i know a couple writers who i've talked to about working in like essentially using like shitty technology to make their work um like i have a friend who will make his books using like 2003 powerpoint Mm. or another guy who only does his images in like ms paint um like i love the idea of utilizing anachronistic technology because i think it at least on like the kind of creating end of it gives you such a limited tool set and these like nice constraints that you're like I want to do this, but how do I do it? And then kind of in that process of figuring out how to do it, you make something completely different. That's still really interesting. Um, But putting out in like an anachronistic way is really interesting too. I know that, um, what's his name? Milo, the rapper still does like a lot of cassettes and um, kind of outmoded forms. And I know vinyl, is coming back if that even counts as outmoded at this point yeah i don't think vinyl ever really left i think that's kind no. of a marketing technology uh, yeah tactic but yeah it's been interesting to see milo's um philosophy on cassettes change mm-hmm. as as he's a, you know as he's sort of changed his whole thing yeah. Because there's an interview where he was putting um, things that happen at day and things that happen at night on cassette. And he was just kind of like, yeah, it's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, you know, all my friends have bad cars anyway. So putting out MP3s is kind of doesn't really help because they can't listen to it in their car to yeah. now where he's like only putting things out on cassettes and kind of using yeah. the fact that you can't track skip to extend the form of the rap song and and things like that and there's like a certain intimacy to those technologies that you have to it's so deliberate when you do it Mm -hmm. like you have to get the cassette tape put it in and like sit there and listen to it versus just like kind of like innocuously throwing something on spotify in the background as you're doing something else yeah like it makes you engage so much more directly well, and his music requires that, too. Oh, yeah. Um, um, he's one of the people that I listen to when I work a lot. It's really? Like, yeah. I try to listen to really distracting stuff when I'm working. So, like, I'll do, like, him or, like, I'll do abrasive music, like, Death Grips or noise music or jazz. Mm. Um, a lot of Sun Ra. He's coming back. He's going on tour. 
How's he doing that? I have no idea. <laughs> I saw I saw an article about that. I didn't read it, but yeah, he's he's coming back. He's making I'm, new music and it seems like there. they've just been reshuffling the same like songs onto different albums for the last couple of years now. Well, sure. Well, but they do things different enough, Jupiter. So. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm curious to see if it's him or the orchestra that are coming back, but <laughs> I guess we'll just have to stay tuned. Your comment about overpublishing is interesting to me um, as a person who hasn't quite gotten published yet. That, like, and I was talking about trying to make a living with Zach on the last episode. And I've been viewing books as, like, buying stock in a company that pays dividends. Where mm -hmm. it's like, well, the more I have out there, it's not going to make me any money right now. But in 30 years, if I have 50 books, that's mm -hmm. better than having five because a person who finds my work and engages with it will have 49 other books to buy. Yeah. And I think that it's both being like pretty young going into this. I just turned 24 two weeks ago. Mm. Um, being like, am I going to regret all of these things that I've put out in like four years when I, or when I think I know better? Um, and it's also, I'm, I'm worried that it's like, I put out three books in a year and by the time it gets to book number three, people are like, okay, I've had enough. Like, I'll skip this. Um, it, it feels like it removes, at least in the present, I think you're very right about like the kind of stock assessment, but in the present, it feels like it removes that like immediate excitement or value from the text. That it's like, oh, another mic book is out. Sure. But at the same time, I've been working pretty quickly and I am impatient. So yeah. I don't want to, if I sit on a book for three years, it feels less special than if I sit on a book for six months. Yeah. Well, just write longer books, I guess. I don't know. I guess so. <laughs> I I've, I've been stuck in that like 100 to 200 page range. I guess I should work my way up. <laughs> well, it's a very comfortable range for people. I mean, these days, what was it? It was um, Kingshot Press. When they when they opened briefly their uh, submissions, they said they only wanted like ten to thirty thousand word books. Mm -hmm. We want it to be read by working class people on the bus yeah. to work, which is which is a nice thing. And I I feel like if you write something that's like a thousand pages long, like the length itself is performative. Yeah, totally. And I feel like um, I'm I'm almost kind of like a uh, hundred pages or a thousand pages feels like the two ideal options. Yeah. It's like movies where it's like, I don't want a, a two and a half or a three hour movie. I want a, a 90 minute movie or a five hour movie. Mm. Like I either want it to be like a condensed experience or something that's like really excessive and large. Yeah. Um, and so, and I feel like I really like that hundred to 150 page range. Cause if you have the time, you can even do that in one sitting. Mm -hmm. um, especially for something that's like 10,000 words across those 150 pages. Oh, yeah. And it almost acts in like that kind of cinematic way where you're you're engaging with it all at once, um, which I really like. Like you don't have time to kind of sit and deliberate and like think about it between uh, different like reading sessions. Um, you have to kind of get through it. And then at the end, you're like, OK, what was that experience like? Yeah. It's... It's a, a strange way to approximate, like, not only what kind of story the reader wants, but how they're going to consume it. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know too many people who are going to, like, walk away from a movie halfway through and then come back to it later. Yeah, exactly. And so, and I think that's why I've kind of taken that more design-oriented approach is, like, you're like, oh, well, I can read more because this page doesn't have that much on it. and like you, I don't know about you, but when I read, I like, I'm looking at how much I have to go through on each page to Absolutely. determine if I keep going. Mm -hmm. And so I think having that kind of like varied density really helps in like keeping people there in the moment. Yeah, for sure. I, yeah. I remember reading Malloy for the first time and it's just like, wait, oh, wait, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> this is I what this is going, going to be. <laughs> yeah. uh, truly. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think I revisited that pretty recently too. And I was like, Oh, I forgot. Like, I forgot that this is what this is like, <laughs> that you just have to hunker down and get through it. And, that, and it's great, but it's such a, 
like an endurance test to get through that now for me. hundred percent. And that was before I started putting sticky notes in books for mm-hmm. like a year or two. And like, I always want to reread the bit about the stones. It's so perfect. It's like the it best is. thing anyone's ever written. It's so oh, obsessively it's perfect. I'm like, well, yeah. so I got to move this stone and move that stone. Uh, that like and I can't find it in the book so if I if I'm gonna find it I'm gonna just have to reread the book again now yeah um, and I, I love the way that he does excess because in like Watt he has that scene that's like he looks from like the window to the wall to the door to the window to the wall and it goes on for like 400 words of just being like his eyes like where his eyes are looking around the room um, there's like a really fun way to play with excess in that um, and I think that a lot of his work kind of in that degree has like an interesting type of like scanning that you're not going to read that whole thing, but you, you look at it and you think about how there's just this like long moment where he's just darting his eyes around. Yeah. And I like the idea of like text that you aren't kind of specifically meant to be reading, but you can just look at it and understand it. I think I read, um, or I saw, I didn't actually read it. I think I saw a thing with regard to Smut Maker about distracted reading. Am I remembering that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can just, uh, well, so we had put the book together uh, with, it's a 72 act play. And so each act is a two page spread. So you're just kind of looking at it all at once. Mm-hmm. And we specifically kind of made it so you're not reading like top left, down page and up again, going to the bottom right that you can just like look at that page and your eyes latch onto what you want and then you just move on to the next like it's just this surface like engagement with a surface Mm -hmm. um and distracted reading is highly encouraged uh because then you just latch onto what really is important and maybe the thing that's distracting you is informing how you're engaging with the text and what you're latching onto in each act Mm. the other thing i had specifically written down to ask you um, mm-hmm. especially with some of the stuff I've read recently that just has the word text repeating over and over and over. Do you, do you copy paste or do you write each one out? I copy paste. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm lazy. I have to admit it. No, it's fine. I, <laughs> there's, um, MoMA has this fairly pretentious guy who sometimes puts out videos through their channel about like, here's how this person paints their paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, and the things that he makes look always never like uh how that person paints but it's it's a good um case study in like learning to oil paint learning like mediums and different techniques and things like that but there's some artist who has lots of little sort of u-shaped brush strokes and she changes Mm -hmm. the like the amount of oil or or um uh, like other mediums that she puts in the paint as she mm-hmm. makes it. And so I was wondering if it's like a meditative thing for you to write text over and over and over again. Uh, no, I um, I think that for those, I'm, I kind of treat it like a, like a minimalist image that I'm just like, okay, here's the part where just the word text goes. And then I tend to spend a lot more time on kind of the more um, non-language based design parts. So like in gut text like arranging well in gut text it's a little different with the text section and i think it's ff um with those kind of like scattered blotches it was very intentional in like the placement of those and in the kind of like increased density and so i think i spend a lot more meditative time arranging things because i'm like this looks good but it doesn't look good enough and then i Mm. keep kind of nitpicking it and um it'll end up being like the same page count the same word count and it's like but i've moved the the large black circle like a little bit higher up on the page which is great like it's it's always these very like seemingly unimportant things that i get stuck on that that informs how i read your work an awful lot going forward now which i think is very (laughs) useful um because you've you've also been you also put like diagrams in there and things like that yeah too huh i don't know i might have to go back and reread some things now um oh one thing i noticed and it's just a little thing i think it might have to do with the fact of how much you write like so so fast but 
um, the word rhizome appears in, in so much of your work. It appears too much. I <laughs> but um, I, read a, I read a lot of Deleuze and Guattari, which I think is why that happened. But I liked the idea of like, I think it informs also how I view uh, a lot of the work is like the rhizome as this labyrinth without a, a start point or end point. Yeah. That is just this kind of chaotic network of corridors that you're meandering or kind of wandering through, um, which is really interesting to me. But in a similar point, I also like the idea of creating these like portals between pieces, like the the micro cinematic universe, <laughs> but in a way making it so that those connections don't make any sense. Like um, the character of AU in Gut Text was originally named uh, Man O Man, all one word. Oh. Um, and it's like that's great but it doesn't make any sense that that's, sure. like they like on the surface you're like ah oh, the two-headed character in this book is man oh man like in the other one um but then you're like why are they here they have no purpose to be here um it's supposed to be two different people and like all of these connections are forming but they don't make any sense <laughs> yeah oh I'm, I'm actually for that i i remember being so happy um, right around the time Lonely Men Club was coming out that Mike Klein just tweeted like all of my books are in the same universe yeah like, oh, oh good so every time Godzilla appears it's the same Godzilla yeah oh I like that and that, that goes back to me as a kid reading so much high fantasy stuff where it's mm-hmm. there's there's no one-off books everything's a trilogy and then that trilogy is followed by a trilogy and it might have different characters and it might be a hundred years later but the world that gets built and i'm so excited by the idea that people in our ecosystem right now could be building those worlds that have nothing Mm -hmm. to do with you know european mythology or, or space and it just like the game Hylix is so interesting to me because it just like it feels like it has its own mythology. Yeah. But it's completely unlike anything I've ever seen before. God, I think I have like 10 hours in that game. I just downloaded the second one actually. Um, is it out? Oh, I missed it. Yeah, that. it came out on the 22nd, I think. Mm. But, and that one's super cool, not only because like Mason Lindroff is a claymation artist so like the aesthetic is so interesting but I think he had said that he used like procedural generation to make the text and then he would like cut chunks out for the dialogue Mm. and so there's this like weird really specific like syntax to how all the characters speak that feels so unique Um, he has on his YouTube channel all these like walkthroughs of little games that he had made in the past Mm -hmm. um, that are so esoteric that like you watch the walkthrough instead of the game because there's like no way you could figure out how the fuck you're supposed to play it. Yeah. Um, and they've been such a like very influential um, kind of like thing for me, like these videos, uh, watching this kind of like this, it's kind of a narrative, but watching this video where it's a walkthrough of a game that you couldn't possibly figure out yourself. And so you're just watching these little figures, like one's called Beachcomber. And so you're just watching this little like figure go around to very specific points in the sand and dig things up that like you don't know what they are they're just like these weird blobs or artifacts um i actually a lot of the time recently i've been uh working to uh japanese playthroughs of hylix where it's like this very quiet like occasional whispering of the player and then just that kind of weird unsettling twangy hylix music in the background but I love that you brought that up because that game I I think I just did another playthrough out of it like two weeks ago. Oh, cool. Have you have you seen Pets Cop? Yeah. Do you know what that is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow, we are like on the same wavelength. Great. <laughs> Good because that's the other thing I want to get that guy on here who who made that. Yeah. The uh, what is it? Carolina is that the company from the game? Yeah. It would have a representative. <laughs> just those those sounds. Just the the bleep boop sounds and he said on his twitter that he like designed a game and then played the game recording himself playing it and then talked over that yeah because that's what yeah i really like that kind of like uh what's the thing like the esoteric procedure of that where like watching that playthrough where it's like okay here are the very specific button prompts 
uh, to do to get this like thing to be summoned or the like pyramid to turn pink. Mm-hmm. It's so cool to watch, like, because it feels like something that you could discover on your own. Like it, it makes the game feel so real that it's like, oh, you played the game, but you just didn't know you had to do this mm-hmm. to like summon whatever weird ghost. Yeah, I, I've been wanting to make a game for a while. I don't know anything about coding. I just like downloaded Unity on a whim, but I want to make a game that like you have to break to actually play it like you have to no clip in a place where you shouldn't be able to to actually see what the game is supposed to be and applying that to writing applying that ideology to books is such a like such an equation to solve yeah that like how can i make a book that's intended to be picked up and read from any page but at the same time, it's bound, you know? Yeah. I was playing around this with this idea a little while ago that I'll probably pick up again sometime of, like, a book that tells you how to properly take it apart. Um, like a book uh, that's almost like altar craft, that it's like you need to crumple this page in a very specific way and place it here, and this one crumpled this way and place it here and cut this page on a diagonal, that it's like by the end you get this just, like, completely torn apart object but it's torn apart in like just the very perfect way that it's supposed to be this is a piece called becoming ossuary scenario you are a weeper and the ground is wet interior surgical suite performance we undergo trepanation your duramata exposed and the cut shard placed onto a metal plate The air is so much louder now. Your skull is whistling with beautiful music and a rhythmic glitching of foot pedals. The scene, the scene. You and your tongue, you with your tongue out and eyes crossed, the cut shard belongs in an ossuary. An ossuary is a pile of bones. An ossuary is a small coffin for bones. Entombed, runer. Performance of funerary rites, beginning with an elaborate march and dance. The dance is built of small actions. They are arranged into a field of choreographies, procedurally generated veneration. The runer leads the march. The cut shard hums in its wooden chest, hues of pink light. Underneath the surgery, there is a cave. The surgery is not over yet. We are still at the suite, looking on. Your duramata remains exposed. The trepanation is performed with a trephine. Mouth, arms, long, folded, ossiburg. It shucks the shell. An endoskeleton is practically an exoskeleton. The only distinction is a thin layer of meat and membrane. Intracellular destruction, annihilation. You play us a beautiful song as we examine your innard. Entombed, Runer leads the march. They hold a quince over your box. This fruit was the garden. This was the fruit of the Garden of Eden. No, 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 a pomegranate, a pomegranate. What a lovely thought. They march to the beachhead and bury you in the sand. The ossuary waits there for 64 years. This is a magical number. It is simple numerology. Every year a black dog is thrown into the ocean. What a lovely thought. Interior, surgical sweep, performance. The gate guard sits with his back fat scraping the chair back. Splinters root into the unnerved flesh. There is nothing here to hold on to. We thud the trephine against your hard head. The duramata dries in the open atmosphere. And, when, and now you are healthier. You are cured. Runer rattles the ossuary, becoming ossuary. It should have that nice kind of pink blush on the inside. Entombed, Runer, and you are a weeper, and the ground is wet, and a gourd is laid on the beachhead in your honor. We envision a great feast, boiled liver, young capillaries, aged piss, everything in life is kaput. We have inevitably taken up residence in exclusion zone, weeping in a meadow of sea vegetables, something like wakame or kombu. In the summer, they dry into stone trees, and we harvest them for the ossuary, to venerate the march, to summon the runer and visit the beachhead. The rest of the body is expendable. All that we need are the cut shard and the duramater. Excess material can be discarded, composted, recycled. Make a new skull, grow a new set of materials, like grafting a tree or a patch of skin, milk chocolate or anonymous fluid exchange, and Kitchell. Entombed, runer, the tech on your face is wet. Are you a weeper, someone asks, out of sight. Interior surgical suite, the tech on your face is replaced, or it is sprayed with a hydrophobic residue. What do you mean? We extract the eyeball carefully and sever the optic nerve when it emerges from the shell and place the eye back in its socket with the visage of an owl. Your tuft and feathery exterior, exterior, surgical suite, performance, trampling your feet on the runer's stomach, making them wheeze and crumple. The ground is covered in viscous juice, either pulled from the soil or spit from the mouth. Trepanation is a procedure for creating an unnatural facade. 
a hallucinatory mise-en-scene, Slavo Žižek. The small actions of the dance mutate into new mediums, an expanded field of movement. The trefine looks like an egg cracker. The duramata is a soft white membrane between the shell and the loose gelatin. A cruciferous head blooms from the cut shard opening. You look like a fungal sprout. You smell like sulfur and moss festering. We attempt to sever your connection. Fungus is vilified for its damage, been woodered. The sur surgical suite fills with a dense spore cloud. Entombed, runer. Every particle of dust contributes to calcification. This is the field of stone sculptures, an invitation to the annual beheading. We all look on with glee. Runer lifts the ossuary from a mound of drift and lodges it in the neck of the guillotine and crushes your cut shard into dust. Runer, entombed, what kind of performance is this? What a lovely thought. The trees look like fennel. The grass is short and dead. You are a weeper, looking on your shattered chest. The wood is built into a fire pit. We plan a great feast.